Welcome to the Canine Classroom, a podcast for dog owners, training professionals, and dog enthusiasts where we discuss training, behavior issues, and everything in between. We're two friends and dog trainers that share a passion for dogs. We're constantly learning and exploring to become better at what we do while also questioning each other and our own thoughts. We're here to provide helpful advice, have open conversations, ask questions, get answers, as well as hear from colleagues and experts in the industry, regardless of method and training style. So take a seat and get your notepad out because class is in session. Welcome to the Canine Classroom. I'm Anthony DiMarinis. I'm here with my buddy Vinny Viola. And today our guest is Joe Rosie Heffington. Hello. Hello. How are What's you? What's going on, guys? Doing all right. How are you? Yeah, not too bad. Not too bad. It's a bit cold in Spain at the moment. I don't know why, but it's it's cold here for once. So I'm it's warm cold. here. It's like yeah. 60 degrees in the yeah, in February in New York. Today. I'll take it. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's so warm here. Yeah. It's actually nice. I can go train afterwards. Cause it's so nice out and I have a break. What time is it over there by you? Uh, it's seven, uh, six 45. So oh, okay. Okay. the dogs have been fed, but that doesn't mean they're calm. But they've been fed. <laughs> they're ready <laughs> like, to go. <laughs> yeah. Well, I have, I have three, three working Malinois, a bulldog boxer and a Vizsla. The Vizsla is cool. Oh boy. So, so you got a full house. A full house, yes. So why don't you introduce yourself? That way it'll save me the trouble of stumbling when I read the bio. <laughs> For sure. Okay, so my name is Jo Rosie Huffenden. And if you don't know me, then my background was originally I did a uh, applied psychology degree and then I did a postgraduate in animal behavior. So I kind of came up a university route and then dived straight into practical and started working at a, a large rescue organization. Um, but I got really into pit bulls while I was there. So then I became an expert witness for the court and worked in England doing expert witness work, um, you know, trying to advocate for dogs and sometimes for their owners, actually, um, in court when dogs were in trouble with uh, with law, uh, either because of what type of dog they were or because they bit people and, you know, caused damage and stuff like that. Um, and then from there, I just um, started my own practice and had eight members of staff and grew that and grew that. And then I was lucky enough to be invited uh, by Channel 4 to come and present some television programmes. So I did three TV shows in the UK um, and then published three books as well. And then I've been absolutely lucky to be uh, given an opportunity to kind of explore the globe and go all across Europe and America and New Zealand and India and all over the place looking at dogs and also um, teaching people uh, at my company which is called the School of Canine Science and then I had a baby and I thought why not put all this stuff online which is what we did. Well you just saved uh, saved me from having to read all that. <laughs> There's been a lot of stumbling going on am I wrong? <laughs> Very impressive I like it. <laughs> And now, and that, so now what I do is I basically, most days I still just get up and train dogs. Uh, but now there's a video camera in front of me most of the time. Um, and I'm still presenting a lot, but I also, I also train the sport of Mondio Ring, which is, is, I'm going to say it's my hobby because it really isn't my profession, but it, it definitely weaves itself into pretty much everything I do now as a dog trainer. So. 
Yeah, Very so interesting. I was just say that that seems to show up a lot in a lot of your videos. <laughs> we wanted to kind of have you on uh, to discuss a little bit or a lot of bit about the science in quotes, the science in air quotes, science. because um, I think one thing that I've been noticing and Vinny's been noticing is that it's thrown out a lot in terms of like the phrase, the science is thrown out a lot today in our industry. So I kind of want to know, like, what does that mean? <laughs> so what is the science and how should we be looking at it? And are the, it, it is this science something that should be questioned or not, et cetera, et cetera. So I have a lot of frustrations with the science, even though I come from a very scientific family and a very scientific background. And that's because it's, Science is just a method of inquiry. It's just the way that we look at something. And it basically is, is a way of trying to put, it's a way of trying to standardize and put systems in place so that we can look at patterns and see how reliable um, patterns are really. Patterns of everything, like whether, whether or not it's like blood types, whether or not we can categorize them systematically or whether or not it's, how those blood types then affect our pain threshold or our personality or whatever. And it's just different ways of measuring stuff and categorizing stuff, really. Um, but people have kind of decided, especially in our industry, that the science actually means the truth. And, and it never means the truth. Like there are no facts. Like science doesn't give us facts. It just gives us data. And that data is just representative of the method used to collect that data. And so... There's a, there's a huge problem, I think, at the moment, whereby science has kind of become the new religion in dog training. And everybody believes wholeheartedly that if the, the science says something, now the science doesn't say anything, but if the science says something, that that is then the truth. So they can go, well, the science says that dogs, dogs find, um, let's say, dogs find being tapped on the nose by a newspaper uh, highly stressful. Now, we all know there's thousands of different uh, variables that might impact that. So how large the dog is and how small the dog is, you know, studies have actually shown that how large and how small the dogs are impacted how aversive they found an e-collar, for example. So we know that that aversiveness is impacted by things like size, age, weight, personality, um, how it's applied, whether or not it's controllable by the animal, whether or not they understand how they can avoid it, whether or not it's uncontrollable, whether or not it comes through the floor, whether or not it comes through the collar, like all these hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of different variables. And so it's kind of almost impossible to say the science says anything because it doesn't. The science says whatever has been studied. So the science might say that a sample of three nine week old Labrador puppies found it aversive when I raised my voice. Um, but it doesn't, it wouldn't even say that they found it aversive. It'd say that they, that they, that their cortisol levels were higher, or it might say that they moved more, but people take the discussions of scientists as a representation of what the data has said. And it, they fail to often recognize the fact that the discussions of the scientists are massively biased and impacted by the experiences of said scientists, which often are not in dog training. So this is some of my frustrations with the whole science says thing. 
The other frustration is, of course, that science is just like one element, isn't it? Like becoming a dog trainer, um, there's there's a whole argument to be put forward. Some of the best dog trainers I know, practically speaking, know very little to nothing about the science. And I have some brilliant conversations with uh, uh, particularly a quite well-known IGP um, competitor who is phenomenal practically and admits that she doesn't know any of the science. And she'll say, why does this work, Joe? And I go, well, <laughs> this works because blah, 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 blah. And, um, and, and so, so when you're training dogs to do behavior, especially, and, and we're not necessarily talking about training dogs to stop behavior because I think that's slightly different, but when we're, when we're training dogs to do behavior, there is an argument to say that the science is secondary to the practical experience and the knowledge and the mechanics and the know-how. It's kind of nice to hear because I get stressed out when I don't always know all the science <laughs> or the things that the studies say or or whatever. So that's kind of nice to hear that there are other people out there who feel the same. The, the other thing to remember is that science is pointless without the practical. Like where does science come from? Like science comes from having a question. Right? So in order to do any science, we have to have a question about something. And those questions are they come from doing stuff right so we go every time I touch my dog after training he's warm why and then we use science to try and discover why our dogs are warm after they've participated in dog training I don't know or or whatever but there has to the, the question has to come first and the value of the answer is is only insofar as its practical application it's funny you say that because I actually I had written down some questions ahead of time. And so one of the things I wrote down was like, to me, like I, for my understanding, science is based off of questions, asking questions. And I find it interesting because we're pushing the science. And then at the same time, if you question it, you're an asshole. (laughs) (laughs) You know? crazy like I think, I think science literacy is really, really important. I think a, a lot of the universities um, and I'm definitely going to be slaughtered for saying this, but I don't care. Um, a lot of the universities, uh, including even where I learn, are, are attempting to train instead of instead of training dog trainers to be dog trainers and dog behaviorists to be dog behaviorists. They're trying to train scientists. And I, and I think it really frustrates me because I'm like, dog trainers need to be science literate. They don't need to conduct research like that's not the job. The job isn't to conduct research and perhaps the best way to become science literate literate is to conduct research. And that's fine. I take that. But that's but if someone's very, very good at conducting research, that doesn't make them a dog trainer and vice versa. I mean, look at Ivan. Ivan is Ivan is super at training dogs, but I would I would like to see him carry out some research because sometimes his ability to pick apart the science is is very low level. Hmm. It's also funny because as I was, I was, I was reading through some, uh, some of these studies, like from the um, American Veterinary Society of Animal Behavior, and some of the studies actually that Ivan presented in his uh, recent podcast about the science. Um, one thing I found that was actually very interesting, and I guess I've never paid attention to it enough. How many of the papers explaining the studies or how many of the studies themselves actually say what could have been done differently or better or what is found inconclusive. So I find it interesting because 
there, there I, I know I have some quotes I've written down in my notes that I'm not going to find at the moment because I'm saying this, but <laughs> there, there were a few of the articles that like basically were showing where they had flaws and what they would look at differently. So one of the studies, um, actually the one I was texting you about this morning, Vinny, was the, first of all, some of them are all based on questionnaire, which didn't, I didn't realize how many studies actually are from are. questionnaire. They're not actually, there are not as many out, out in the world observation hands-on. So I know you're going to want to touch on that because I can see you're jumping out of your seat. But uh, the other thing that I also found interesting was in one of the studies, they, uh, they did go out and observe, but it was only two group classes. They went to observe a, a school that was doing group classes using a, more aversive methods. And they went to a school that was using more positive based methods. And it was only based on two observations of classes, which I found so interesting because it was such a small number. And actually the like in the paper, it said one of the flaws was that we should have looked at more uh, training facilities to determine X, Y, and Z. And then they even like started in the same paper, they were even talking about the use of tools like e-collars and how a lot of the dogs actually did better using positive reinforcement than using an e-collar. But then, then it said like, again, the flaws, well, we didn't know uh, if the collar was used before or after behavior problem how severe the dog's uh, behavior problem was if it was related to predation or chasing, which was interesting. And then the other thing that was interesting is they didn't know um, what the owner considered to be successful or not. So even though it, it was a presentation on utilizing, um, you know, trying to figure out what is more effective using punishment-based methods or more a positive-based approach, they, uh, in the end, even though it concluded, well, it looked like positive reinforcement was actually a much better and fair approach for the situation they were in. They couldn't answer all the other questions, which was interesting because then it's like, well, there, there's a lot of flaws now, in, you know, after, I mean, it's not even that the presentation is wrong or that the answers are incorrect, you know, in their findings, but it's just interesting that there are actually a lot more questions that need to be answered then. One of my biggest problems which with the... blew my mind because i'm yeah. just like not i i'm a horrible reader and like this stuff overwhelms me so as i read i was like jesus like this is oh, insane. Wow. <laughs> so i think a lot of people who are quite new to reading science are always surprised by there's a big problem which is sample size you want a lot of people in your sample the more dogs the better but then that's going to massively impact your methodology collecting surveys is especially with the internet the easiest way to get a massive sample size without a doubt but whether or not that that data that comes back is is truly valid to the question it it or or, or reliable is um is most definitely question, questionable uh one of the studies that i that i that i love thinking about is the study of um there's a certain uh polymorphism like a genetic mutation that malinois suffer with um and uh poly 22 lots of people have heard of it um and and it's one of these things that it seems to be only mallies or, or really only mallies that that struggle with it um and everybody knows it is the aggression gene right so it's this, this gene over one of my dogs i don't know where he is but my main competition dogs he's got poly 22 but anyway hmm. we had, had all mine tested because uh, just for fun 
quickly, just just because I wanted to make a prediction before we got the answers back and then the answers. But anyway, um, and, and Blake has it, but it, it's got this reputation as the aggression one. The study on that is ludicrous. And whether or not it's aggressive or not, it all depends on a questionnaire that the answer that the um that the owners answered. And the question is, I'm gonna get the wording wrong, but the question is something along the lines is, has your Malinois ever shown ever shown aggression or um gone to bite or bitten a dog or a person? And I'm like, find me one why the answer is no. Like, <laughs> like, especially because most of these are adolescents. And you're like, what What do you mean? Yeah, like pretty much every day, one of them will grab my arm or, you know, or, or but, and, and like those things just blow your mind because you're like that, that completely, that completely muddies the whole of that study because it doesn't show any, any level of, <laughs> of reliability or validity or because nobody who is a professional is assessing these dogs that come and are going through these surveys. They're just dog owners who are going, yeah, he seems happy, tick, you know. Well, I was going to just say it also would depend, I guess, uh, like, and this is where it gets interesting, because then it also depends what do you consider biting? Exactly. Absolutely. Like 100%. So definitions are so important. And definitions are one of the biggest things I think that that is problematic, particularly in this argument of, um, for the moment, let's say balance versus positive reinforcement trainers or whatever. Um, because I think one of the definitions that, that, until we get this clear, until we all agree this, it's every single study that's been done might as well be torn up into tiny little pieces and put through the shredder. Because what we need to agree is how aversive is too aversive and how do we measure that? That's what we need to agree, right? Because it doesn't matter if you're a balance trainer or a positive reinforcement trainer or whether or not you're um, knowingly using things that scare or frighten dogs or not right? It doesn't matter. That's what's important. We know that low levels of stress, tolerable stress when overcome, in, it improves health, improves stress, improves resilience, improves learning ability, it improves all this stuff. So we know that some level of aversive, some level of tolerable stress is can be a really good thing, right? We, we know this to be true. We also know that certain levels of stress are incredibly detrimental to your immune system, incredibly detrimental to neurogenesis, can cause shutdown and learn helplessness and all these other things that then prevent an animal from learning again in the future. But we need to agree between all of us how aversive is too aversive because saying training that uses aversives it, it is is just stupid, isn't it? Because every try like. Like what's really interesting to me is when I work, when I work with balance trainers and when I work with um, force free trainers, uh, and it comes to teaching a behaviour. Like let's say we're teaching the dog to get on a platform, yeah. So the dog gets on the platform, excellent. Feed, feed, feed. Both parties do the same. They both feed the dog on the platform. Woohoo! Right, the dog comes off the platform when it shouldn't come off the platform. Now the force free community walk over to the platform to help lure the dog back onto the platform. The Balance community walk towards the dog towards the platform to to use spatial pressure to push the dog back on. It's both exactly the same. If you were to video it, you couldn't tell the two things apart. But one pe one one group of people will say it's spatial pressure, and the other one will say they're helping the dog. And and so much of this is just it's just semantics, right? And and a lot of the time we aren't 
particularly good um, in in the more force free camp at being aware of things like spatial pressure and eye contact and how much these things and how our body posture and leaning over dogs and how much these things are impacting the behavior. And because the balance community are more comfortable with knowingly using things that that put pressure on the dogs, they're also seem to be a lot more capable of articulating that in a particular training scenario. And but but both of them, both parties do the same. Both parties use both. We're both we're, we're all clearly comfortable with using spatial pressure because, I, you know, so many of the techniques across the board use spatial pressure or use eye contact to push a dog or, or whatever. And yet. W- without a line of saying, well, this much is too much, then all of the studies that look at stress signals without looking at the longevity of the responses of the animals. So all of the studies that then look at and say, well, using these methods, there were more stress signals within the session than using these methods. All of that is, is it's redundant data, it's pointless, unless the stress, stress signals are indicative of something that's too aversive, that is counterproductive and not good for the dog. Because if it isn't counterproductive and not good for the dog, then what's the problem? Do you see what I mean? Yeah. And then the one thing that struck me by surprise with a lot of the studies were like, for example, with electric collar, they're just using the electric collar at the highest level. Mm -hmm. Like it's just all the way to the top, which like, you know, or the punishment would be like kicking the dog. You know what I mean? Like, or like hitting the dog. And I was like, whoa. And then like there were there were studies where the electric collar was actually the lowest like in terms of what what was perceived as aversive by that study because the other things were like kicking the dog in the chest or like punching the dog and then um you know which I feel like is an unfair representation because at least the balance trainers that I've learned from and I follow and and I enjoy they're not using the tools like that and then to your example with spatial pressure I feel like even me personally of intentionally using spatial pressure and intentionally using leash pressure I'm showing my dogs that way ahead of ever needing to use it so then in the example that they are on a box and then they get off and then I step into their space they're going to be more prepared for that and then less stressed out by it than maybe by someone that's doing it without even realizing that it might be a thing you know what I mean I think did she oh did we lose her <laughs> oh there we go oh, we lost you for a second <laughs> you're back <laughs> Yeah, Spain. I was like, everything I said is fucking wrong. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I got to I got to the point where you're using spatial pressure to put the dog back on. Yeah. The so like, if someone like a balance trainer that is using spatial pressure and is aware that they're using it, you could make the argument that when they use spatial pressure, it's actually less aversive. Again, it depends on the dog in the scenario than someone yeah. that's using spatial pressure without knowing they're doing it. And their dog's yes. never seen spatial pressure before, yes. but they're like, oh, well, I'm just luring the dog back on the thing. But like, you think you're doing that, but maybe you're stepping into the dog's space. You know, like who hasn't worked with someone with a small little dog that has that, like, I don't want to get stepped on type of thing. And the mm-hmm. dog is constantly running away from the foot, even though you have cookies there because it's been stepped on before, For you sure. know, so. And, you know, how, how many times have you seen a trainer using a lure, a treat lure, but when they're lifting it over the dog's head and the dog's not sitting, so they're moving their hand They're moving their towards head, and the dog's backing up and they're getting closer the again. And the dog's <laughs> going into a sit yeah. because they're, they're pressuring them into it. And But but the thing is, is that the thing that's important is that all of us are saying there's nothing wrong with using that spatial pressure in that situation. Mm-hmm. So long as there's this one pivotal, pivotal, pivotal factor, which is clarity. As long as mm-hmm. there's clarity for the animal, for the learner. So as long as the learner 
understands the lesson as long as they know how to how to participate in a way that is beneficial for themselves then then a lot of the problematic stuff goes by the wayside and I so think uh, oh sorry I think it's one of those things that that as far as my knowledge and I I train with with every different type of trainer under the sun um and I would say that that in all across all the different labels good trainers can be classified by their ability to give their the animal clarity and the the shittier trainers the trainers with the frustrated and redirecting dogs and dogs that are finding it difficulty to my mind nearly always can be classified by a lack of clarity in the lesson so then um in that same respect and you brought up that that's what needs to be measured and i'm sure it's going to be from dog to dog and situation to situation but where and this is where definitions come in is you sometimes hear people talk about you know punishing your dog or correcting your dog and some trainers will have a different definition of each of them some people will use them you know it's the same thing like correct your dog or punish your dog they mean the same thing but other trainers will see a correction almost more like negative reinforcement like guidance like guiding pressure so where is that line where now you're guiding based on maybe having leverage over your dog versus actually using like pain compliance and then is that tool dependent like can you for example give a dog guiding pressure with a prong collar um, versus just putting a prong car on it and like, you know, yanking it. Um, so I don't know if I'm being clear with that question, but well, like, where that, is that line? Me, the difference between guiding pressure and punishment would be when it happens, the timing of it, because if you're guiding a dog into a behavior, then it happens before the behavior. And if you're punishing a dog, then it happens after the behavior, right? And, but if there, if there is some, if there is a pressure that the dog does want to escape, would you still consider that a correction or are you doing both? You know, if the dog is chasing a squirrel and you say come and then the dog doesn't and then you turn on the stem of an electric collar until the dog turns back around, mm -hmm. you know, like, is yeah, that guiding pressure or are we are we, you know, like now there's pain, you know, involved? Well, then like, we have to ask the dog. We have to ask the dog. The dog, I yeah. I don't see why it can't be both, depending mm -hmm. on what those definitions are. You're, yes. you're effectively correcting a behavior you don't want. And it, it, I guess it depends on what you're measuring, doesn't it? Like, mm -hmm. are you measuring the squirrel, squirrel chasing or are you measuring the coming back the recall, to me? yeah. Like, 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 which one are you measuring? I think this comes down to a fundamental problem, which is that so much emphasis has been put on bloody Skinner and his bloody quad. That was going to be my next question. I, I love it. It's like me and you planned before this because I, I saw I saw you, I think a recent post you just did. Um, and, and I hear this. <laughs> You know, like, oh, like, think beyond the Skinner box. Like, you hear that's like almost like a new buzz for you. Like, oh, like, it's like you get into an argument about the quadrants and then people go to that as like a way out. Oh, well, those quadrants <laughs> don't matter now. Oh, now they don't matter. Okay. So, so, okay. So what does that mean to you? When someone says, like, think beyond Skinner, like, what, how do you, how do you describe that? What does that mean to you? So for me, as a psychology, uh, initially, my first degree was in applied psychology, it's human psychology, but it's applied psychology. And um, for me, what I find fascinating is that as an industry, dog training is pretty much the only like type of psychology that hasn't <laughs> completely disregarded this and gone, this is a waste of our time because behavior but we spent so happen. long memorizing <laughs> them. Come on, you can't get take <laughs> them away now. Like, I just started understanding like, it. <laughs> behavior, behavior doesn't happen in a vacuum. And it's <laughs> You know, the, this stuff is stuff learned from pigeons in labs where they didn't take into consideration things like intrinsic motivation and all this other stuff. And essentially what it's really important to remember about Skinner is that what he designed was a metric, 
right? That's all he wanted to design. That's all that was. He never called it a quadrant either. That came from a teacher later teaching it. Um, he didn't call it a quadrant. And and he never, he, he what he did is he designed a way of measuring behavior because he wanted to basically be able to put his pigeons in the box and go to the pub and come back with these nice little charts that told him what behavior, like whether or not behavior change had happened or not. So effectively, those four terms were, created to only be used retrospectively so there were it was never about the likelihood it was about what had happened right so whenever we use those terms we should be saying positive reinforcement has occurred not that it will occur because you don't know whether or not until the future absolutely it's it's always in hindsight um and another huge mistake that people make is that it has an emotional contingent so people say like it, it, like positive reinforcement, it feels good for the dog, um, and you know, and all, all of that jazz. But that's not true. I mean, my my example today was, you know, if a dog bites me in the foot and I kick him in the face, and he bites me again, and I kick him again, and he bites me again, and again, and I kick him again, then I've just positively reinforced the biting, right? I've added something that's increased the behavior. Like, or it could you even say that you negatively reinforce, like the dog is being negatively reinforced because biting you stops you from kicking it? Well, no, because the biting is a consequence to the behavior. I didn't kick it first. Oh, okay. So if you were going over and just kicking a dog and then the dog bit you and then you stopped kicking it, yeah, like that you could yeah. also, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But, the, but this is the point, right? Because it's nonsensical in that situation. It doesn't matter anyway. But it's, uh, but th there was never an emotional contingent. And in fact, if you read his books, the reason Skinner didn't, didn't study schedules of punishment that came later by a different scientist he didn't bother with that was because he said oh it's, it, there's too much emotion involved and I don't want to study emotion that's not important to me like Thorndike who did the original cats in boxes study where he put cats in boxes and gave them basically pleasant or unpleasant things and they had to escape from the boxes he was all about pleasant and unpleasant consequences Skinner wasn't he didn't care about pleasant or unpleasant he didn't want emotion he just wanted behavior it wasn't about the emotional contingent if there was an emotional contingent, it, there wouldn't be four terms, right? There'd have to be eight because you'd have to have adding something pleasant, increased behavior, adding something unpleasant, increased behavior, taking something away that was pleasant, that increased behavior, taking something away unpleasant, that increased behavior, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So you'd end up with, with those eight boxes and then probably plus extinction as well. So nine boxes, right? It, it, it was never that. So we, we're using something that was designed as a metric system to be used in hindsight without the emotions to now try and quantify incredibly emotional incredibly emotional behavior change. Like we're, we're, we're squishing pets, like square pegs in round holes and it doesn't fit. And for that, because of that, people get stuck learning it because it doesn't make any sense half the time. And then they get stuck arguing it because it doesn't make any sense. And then we end up with this weird thing where we have labels of what we do based on a metric system that was completely ill-designed and has been kicked out and no one ever uses in any, any other form of psychology. It's crazy. And you end up with these massive arguments online. Well, actually, no, I think she's negatively reinforcing it because of this, that. And you're just like, oh my God, this has absolutely no relevance to what's happening at all. Nothing. So, so, and it's one of the questions I wrote down for you. I wanted to hear what you, what you would say. Um, I often hear you're not addressing the underlying emotions. Yes. And that's in regards to using what is considered, you know, punishment or corrections. But so are we only able to address underlying emotions with reinforcement? 
No, no, not at all. Absolutely not. I mean, mm-hmm. essentially, it goes back to Watson and conditioned emotional uh, conditioned emotional um, responses. And, and he had a child and he conditioned a very negative emotional response to a rabbit, right, by smashing. He had a baby. He used to put it on a mattress. Uh, a rabbit came out. And every time the rabbit came out, he smashed a great big hammer against this metal thing. And the baby screamed and cried. And, and it, eventually the the rabbit itself would elicit this emotional response and he so he kind of coined this idea that you could condition emotional responses as well and when when we're talking about using a more Skinnerian model and and and, and punishing so reducing behavior and, and using aversives to reduce behavior often they say that the underlying emotion isn't isn't looked at because we're not worried about the fact that Watson just like Pavlov is always on our shoulder and so he mm-hmm. so if we're if I get 10 dogs and I need them in the chest every time they jump up at me um we could be causing a, a conditioned emotional response where the dogs then say ah I hate I hate people because people kick me in the chest every time I greet them mm-hmm. um, and so sometimes when we look at when we look at things through a Skinnerian lens, what we're doing is we are reducing the behavior in question, but but because we're not looking at the emotion of the dog and we're not thinking about the emotion of the dog, it's not necessarily um, gonna help the behavior of the dog elsewhere. And it can cause a lot of problems as a result of that. And sometimes it does and sometimes it doesn't. And uh, it's one of those where understanding the dog in front of you and genuinely being able to ha- take a good assessment of a dog is is so so important because actually I think sometimes we can overstate the emotion of the dog like for example car chasing a lot of my practitioners get really caught up on what the motivation of the dog is for car chasing and I'm just like just teach it to walk on a loose lead like <laughs> don't worry about it just teach it to walk on a loose lead and your problem will be solved like it doesn't like sometimes that emotional contingent doesn't really matter because if we teach it to walk on a nice loose lead, then we're going to be counter conditioning it anyway, because we're going to be feeding it nice stuff or playing good games with it by the car. Like, so a lot of the time it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily matter. Um, and then some of the time it does. And the, the, a good practitioner will be able to recognize when you can obedience your way out of a behavior problem. And when you actually need to look at the motivations of the dog. Um, the other thing that that, makes me think about um going back to the kind of like the old sciencey studies is that a lot of the stuff that Skinner did was with pigeons and targets and I always find it really interesting especially and and this this other guy Aslin I think his name was Azrin Azin I think his name was who studied schedules of punishment he also did it in a Skinnerian box situation with with pigeons pecking targets and what I find fascinating about using that behavior is that they didn't recognize at the time that that behavior is going to be incredibly intrinsically reinforcing for the animal because it's pecking behavior and they're birds mm, yeah you know what <laughs> i mean like like it, the, why didn't they do like lever pulling because i think the results would have been completely different um and so uh, when we're thinking about looking at like obediencing through a behavior problem Sometimes I think the criticism, whether or not you're using positive reinforcement or whether or not you're using punishment or whether or not you're using negative reinforcement or you're using negative punishment, it, it's irrelevant when you're kind of obediencing through that one behavior problem without looking at the dog and why the dog is performing that behavior. You can miss really, really important things like like the biological fulfillment a dog could get by doing that behavior. So if you've got a dachshund digging in the garden, then the biological fulfillment of that, how intrinsically reinforcing that is, is gonna 
play a massive part and you can suppress the behavior via punishment but the likelihood is you're going to get that drive leaking elsewhere and the dog's going to then start doing something else naughty um and so i think that's the other thing that people have a problem with when you when you just look through that skinnerian box and you don't you're not really thinking about the actual motivations of the animal that just made me think Very of good. that just made me think of like redirecting behavior especially like those when you have a drivey puppy or adolescent dog and that dog is just like constantly mouthing or grabbing or whatever and i know it's just puppy behavior and then we we redirect it, but actually you're reinforcing another response that might actually be teaching that dog to do it more over time. Yeah, yeah, because practice makes permanence, right? So every time we're allowing an animal to practice everything, when we're the neurogenesis means that the, the neuro pathways are getting stronger and stronger and stronger. <laughs> so for sure. But <clears throat> equally, you have to balance that up with ideas of motivation and drive don't you so you've got things like there's like a great model called Hull's uh, hydraulic model which I, I like I, it, it, it's a bit debunked and people don't like it for various reasons but I still like it especially when it comes to like working dogs and basically it's a hydraulic model um whereby you have like a tap coming out that that is meant to be representative of the energy of the dog and a tank and the more the, the more the tap comes out the higher the tank gets um and and the more drive the dog has to to do the behavior kind of thing but essentially if you the the if you don't use that energy up somewhere it's going to leak out the edges isn't it and it's going to start mm -hmm. leaking and so you're going to end up with an animal that 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 behavior leaks elsewhere and the balance is that the more the more the the more you practice the behavior the more that taps gonna gonna come out the more energy the animal is gonna have to perform that behavior because essentially you're like 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 when you build an athlete when you build a muscle when you do anything you know the more the more bite work i do with my dogs the more water's gonna flow out of their bite work tap and so then the more i'm gonna have to look for ways to use that water otherwise my tap my my tank's gonna start leaking and there's gonna behaviors gonna come elsewhere but every dog has a natural flow of behavior anyway, right? So some dogs have like a really, like my Vizsla, she's 12, and, and, and she has a really like slow drip of drive behavior. Like she likes stalking birds a bit. That's about as much as she has naturally. So I can make that flow more by getting her to practice stalking birds and getting her to run and chase the pigeons and that kind of thing. And then I can get a little bit more flow out of the tap. So I've got a bit more water in that tank to use if I want to. Or I can just allow it to drip, 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 drip. But if I do nothing with it at all, after probably about two years, I might <laughs> start getting some leak, right? And then, and then I've got my baby Manamar over there, whose tap is like surging. It's like all day long. And I have to really carefully balance that up with how much time I have to train her and how much ability I have to allow her to get this fulfillment. And making sure that I'm not training her too much so that I'm making a rod for my back and I'm building this athlete that wants to come out biting all day every day and I haven't got the ability to do that and it's going to leak over the edges so I quite like that engine model because I think that 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 kind of helps us to look at what you were saying about you know every time they practice it they're strengthening it it's more likely and sometimes that's bad because sometimes you're filling up 
you know, you're, you're making that tap flow faster and that's going to leak out elsewhere. But sometimes like with a, like with a lot of like pet, nice pet spaniels that have been bred as pet spaniels, that, that, you know, you, you, we don't need to really worry about that leaking right. over the edges and practicing games of tuggy with a staffy, for example. It's with a lot of staffs, that's not really going to leak over the edges. It's it, the, the animal is going to be able to be maintained. Um, and then I wanted to, I kind of wanted to actually go back to what you said before, because it was actually funny you brought resilience and stress up, because actually it was a, a question I had written down that I wanted to get your take on. So I, and I don't know who else to ask. So I'm asking this to you because I don't know, like I kind of feel a little crazy in a way when I think about this, but I I feel like there's a lot of push or information out there that stress is always better, that we have to minimize it or, or avoid it as much as possible. And I see it a lot in, especially in a lot of uh, socialization type stuff with puppies. And I want to, I want to know like your, I want to hear your take on that. Is, is it all bad? Is it actually maybe something that helps build confidence and resiliency in, in puppies? Um, Should we be shadowing them or hiding like them from all the stress in the world? Or like, I, I want to like get, to the bottom of that question. It's a selfish, a selfish question for me because I always like think about this in my head a lot. And um, I think as someone who like as a kid, maybe struggled in school, there were certain things that were very stressful that maybe made, made me want to avoid certain things, but other things that made me really push forward to work through it and pass it basically if that makes sense I get past that so Mm -hmm. I'm curious if there's if somehow that could play a role in our dogs whether it's a pet dog or or a more sporty driven type of dog Um, so yeah I kind of selfish question but I had that written down so I want to go back to that so I think stress thresholds are really, really relevant, especially to a lot of dog trainers at the moment, because I do think, as you say, we've kind of I think we're just coming out of it, but we've been living in this kind of this era of like all stress is bad stress and all all arousal is bad arousal. And we need to keep our dogs calm and asleep all of the time, um, which is just a load of bullshit, isn't it, really? But I think that it's really important that we stress our dogs out. Really important. Um, I actually want my puppies to experience stress and I try to stress them. Um, There's just important factors that you've got to understand about stress. So tolerable stress is super, super healthy and really important because it's the best way to think of it is an inoculation. It's a stress inoculation. You're giving the animal a little bit of stress so they can deal with stress later. And so they've got the, the abilities to deal with stress later down the line. It increases confidence, it increases immune system, it has tons and tons and tons of benefits, as long as the animal can overcome the stressor, as long as they can go from a point of being stressed to not being stressed around the trigger or whatever it is. And um, so I think we need to set up lots and lots of scenarios whereby the animals are getting stressed and then overcoming it so that when they do in real life meet a scenario where they can't overcome it, it's one in a hundred rather than the only stressor they've met that's you know completely uncontrollable. And we can do this by 
allow there's two things that we can do one of the things that we can do is allow this by ensuring that the animal has some level of control over the situation now we also we have to do that with a pinch of salt because we know that if something is frightening or if something is um uh is is if the animal has got any anxiety about something, then it's going to repel and not attract the animal. So we know that if we give them too much control, they're going to go, see you later. I don't, I don't, <laughs> right. um, but we also, uh, and we also know that if we give them no control over it at all, then that flooding can go one of two ways. And sometimes flooding can be incredibly and impressively successful. And we can, you know, I've seen I've seen dogs flooded by trainers before in a horrifying way, whereby they're literally held with their head in a muzzle between the legs of the trainer and other dogs come in and sniff them and sniff them and sniff them. And they're giving a little bit more control. They give a little bit more freedom and a little bit more freedom. And they correct the dog when it gets wrong. It's horrific. It's horrible. Is it successful? Yeah, sometimes horribly. I don't. I don't recommend it. It's a horrible method. It's not nice for the animal, and I think it's probably terror giving a terrible um, emotional conditioned response to other dogs and to humans. But does it work? Yeah, and flooding can sometimes work. Um, but arguably, when I'm socialising a puppy, I wouldn't look to flood it. I would definitely. I, I would look for maybe minor flooding sometimes, as long as the animal then has a way of es escaping and exit. Um, for me, the most important thing is the the Pavlovian response. The, the, I want the animal to always want to go back to that scenario. So one way to do that, and something that I've done with, I've, I've, I've um, hand-reared a bunch of Mali litters and uh, raised a bunch of litters as well. And one way to do that is to create a either a particular pattern or a particular context to novelty right from the word go. So you teach them that always in this space, or always in this room, you're going to find something new and you're going to have the ability to interact with it and if you interact with it something nice will probably happen and you can probably overcome it okay so the, the like for example you see a lot of these assault courses for the puppies now where they have to climb over things and through things and round things in order to get to their food every day and stuff like that and making those harder so it's the same context every day the dog knows there's going to be some sort of challenge here if i get through that challenge i'm going to get something that's fairly nice the other side not massively nice maybe a little bit of kibble something you know adequately nice and then so then you're building a pattern by which you can present new things to the puppies and they're having this stressful situations that they're overcoming to get something nice and and then it allows you if you go out on a walk and you see that the dog's like highly stressed by the bin bags you go oh, i'm gonna do a bunch of bin bags tomorrow and i'm gonna put them in that really known environment where they know they're gonna have something that they struggle with that they know that there's gonna be something there and that they always overcome and you can go and get those bin bags and put them in that environment so you're taking away all the other factors you're taking away any kind of trigger stacking that can happen and you've got like a really safe way to to keep adding things that are more and more stressful for the puppy. So I really like that, that way of doing it. I also really like box feeding. Box feeding to me is game-changingly good, where you where the puppy eats out of the box and all the time that he's eating, these different stressful things gradually get more and more and more stressful. And if he puts his head out of the box then they stop because the animal then is in control of what's happening and they're in control of the stressor and their access to the food. The food never gets taken away. It's um, it's it's a really nice way to expose the puppy to lots of stressful things and build resilience. Although that's probably a little bit more like exposure and habituation than it is really, get, really than stress inoculation. 
Although you could argue both is happening at the same time. Is that just so I, because I don't know if I, I want to make sure I'm thinking of the same thing as the box feeding, like what Pat Stewart does? Yeah. Uh, that yeah. type of box yeah. feeding? Okay. Yeah, there's lots of variations of it, but that's, yeah. that's, definitely, one, that's definitely one way of doing it. Um, uh, and with the puppies, I do it much more simply in the in the sense oh, okay. of the, the the food is the food is in the box to start with the right. thing is happening if they take their head out of the food the thing stops and if they carry on eating the thing continues um the thing might be like you're tapping the side of the box with something or yeah so so okay. with my with my with my mondio puppies we use all the mondio paraphernalia so clatter sticks sure um <laughs> and, and in fact it's it's the way that uh it's the way that i initially expose my dogs to gunshot too so party poppers and then gunshot happens over there and then it happens closer and it happens closer if the dog lifts their head out of the box then i know to continue at that distance until the dog will continue feeding whilst the gunshot's happening and then closer and closer and closer mm. and it's um it's a funny one because it goes right back to the really really early studies of um of when they had these cats that they uh they electrocuted a cat, these cats in a box in a lab. Who was it? Holt or Yolt? Can't remember one of the two. But um uh, they electrocuted cats in a lab in, in boxes and they found that the cats were um really stressed out and then they wouldn't go in the boxes afterwards. And then they gradually exposed them to things that are more and more similar to the box whilst the cats were eating. And it was the first ever study of counter conditioning, really. It was the first ever time they found that pairing eating with something improved the animal's emotional response to it. And um, and and they believed that you couldn't be stressed and eat at the same time. But now, obviously, that's changed a lot. And now I think all of us who have ever worked with a resource guarding 16-week-old Doberman know that you can definitely be stressed and eat at the same time. Um, <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> but uh, but that was the idea back then that you couldn't eat if you were if you were stressed, um, and that's kind of the idea behind using the box scenario as a way to inoculate puppies to stress is the fact the idea that if they're eating then they can't then they're not they're they're not too stressed if they're eating especially when they when they understand the process that if they stop eating the thing stops because you're it, it gives them the ability to tell us that they're where they are on that that threshold of going from tolerable stress to a kind of toxic stress i think it's um i think it's a skill learning where that threshold is in dogs that's that's incredibly valuable as well because in my experience of things like dog dog aggression um and stuff like that it's um really the closer a practitioner can go to that threshold of tolerable to, to toxic stress the, the better the work and the more the more bang for your buck you're getting so for my mind when, when you've got a novice trainer who's just starting out in behavior work and they they first start exposing dogs to other dogs they're so scared of going over threshold that they keep their dogs pretty stress pretty stress free and pretty relaxed the whole time and a lot of these kind of like Grisha Stewart habituation techniques where they just they're just basically walking their dogs around equipment and scattering food on the floor and the dog's never in any state of stress that take years to see any proper behavior change sometimes um 
to, to me, that's, you know, a more novice practitioner tends to stay down there. The more experience you get and the more experienced practitioners I work with are the ones who work closer and closer and closer to the threshold. When I go, I like to call it surfing the threshold. I like to really surf, if I can, that threshold of tolerable stress where, the, where I know that the dog is just on the edge. But every time he is successful, those reps are worth so much to him and it really changes his behavior a lot faster. Yeah, and I think that's where sometimes leverage and even tools um, start to change maybe because now when you're working a dog closer to that threshold and then maybe they go over threshold and are uncontrollable, it's like, you know, certain tools will allow you to communicate to a dog still when they're ramped up. Um, so also, you have the real tricky cases, and this is where tool use g goes into a gray area. Um, mm -hmm. Because I, I don't use tools for the record at all. Like I don't use e collars or prong collars. I say tools. Obviously, I use like a hammer when I. You don't use leashes. No. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> for definition wise, I'm just talking about um, yes, <laughs> prong collars and lean collars. But I, I don't use them. But but it is difficult, and it's a a real dilemma it's a real ethical dilemma because I've had cases before where you have and it's usually I've worked with a lot of bully breeds um, and it is usually bully breeds uh, when I'm talking about these particular dog aggression cases now we're all very aware of like how important genetics are these days and how important you know what line your dog's from and stuff so what happens when you get like my old pit bull who was a London bred ex-fighting dog right so he's been bred through generation and generation to be epic at fighting dogs and dare I say it and lynch me but dare I say it he loved it he'd love it if he was allowed to fight dogs all day he absolutely 100% would he loved a good scrap we can argue till the cows come home that maybe it was the relief of not dying that in no he just loved a scrap he loved it the only way to give him his biological fulfillment really was for me to fight him which is what I used to do on a daily basis and just physically fight him hold him to the ground and he'd growl at me and he'd launch at me and he'd get me and I'd get him back and like and we we fought each other um every day for like 14 years but he he, he loved fighting and if he could get to a dog and fight with a dog then he would um, he he, 100% would. And, and it poses a bit of a, an ethical dilemma because a lot of the um, protocols that we have when it comes to like surfing threshold assumes fear, mm. right? And it yeah. assumes that the dog, um, we've, we've crossed this threshold, the dog is now in a, in a place of unpleasantness mm -hmm. and the dog, the, the dog doesn't want to be in and we need to somehow get through his arousal and communicate with him to get him back under that threshold so we can carry on communicating to him it doesn't bear into consideration the fact that a lot of dogs are intrinsically motivated to do the behavior and they're and super committed to something now. they're like i am doing that thing yeah. oh yeah like, and like yes, everything goes it. blank and it's like they're seeing mm -hmm. red and you know yeah. you know and that's where people are like sticking cookies in their face and it's like no no no, no. like that dog is locked and loaded Absolutely. you know cookies <laughs> in that face in his face at the moment i mean if i'm lucky it could over justify and punish the behavior with the cookies because i'm interrupting something that he finds really pleasurable perhaps but more than likely i'm just rewarding him for doing what he loves doing right um, and so, so using food in that environment is 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 no good if we're going to look in that kind of if we're going to look through that Skinnerian lens. And and the problem is is that it, when when you have a dog like that, 
when you're feeding it and going well done well done well done for not trying to fight that dog it's very different than when you're going well done well done for managing to be around that thing that you find a bit scary mm-hmm. and this is where it's it's a, an ethical dilemma isn't it because we need to tell the dog no that's completely socially unacceptable to do the thing that you've been bred to do for generations and generations yeah. and that you I really was- love it uh, that's what I was just, uh, it was while Vinny was saying what he just said, I was thinking about, I was just thinking about that because I, I always, there are some cases that you get that come your way and it's just like, no, you can't counter condition that instinctual response out of, you know, like it's, and, and like, sometimes you need to somehow say no, or this is not acceptable in this situation. <laughs> Well, when you think about counter conditioning, what we're trying to do is change the emotional response of the dog. And normally we're trying to change it from avoidance to an appetitive response or or to like, I hate that thing to I love that thing. But what that fails to recognize is that sometimes what we're trying to do is change it from I love fighting that thing to I shouldn't really fight that thing. And and that's really difficult. And and as a as a as a trainer that doesn't use those tools, I I do tend to fall under the horrible umbrella in those situations of obediencing myself through it and just trying to use the drives of the dog and massively condition a toy and teach the dog. Um, I used to put puppies actually, because if I saw dog aggression in young bully puppies, I'd put them on what I used to call the anti-socialization protocol, whereby I would teach the puppies right from day dot that they don't socialize with any other dogs. Um and it was it was massively successful, to be fair, because I ended up with a whole bunch of bullies that could be walked straight through a dog park without without leads, just with the owner's side. No problem, because they've learned from day dot. They do not ever socialize with other dogs. So they never get to express those genetics of fighting anyway in in the in best case scenario. Um, and they're massively paid right from day dot of walking by the sides of the owner. But the owner has to be committed to not socializing their puppy, which is is something that's really a really hard sell. So um, I, I was going to, I was actually going to say, so like in these, you know, what, what do you, what do you, and I'm not saying this to try and put you on the spot. So, that's right. um, uh, but like, what do you do in like these scenarios where you're at that ethical dilemma mm-hmm. and you know, like you either you or they've had a bunch of other trainers in the past that have done things or the dog has a history at this point of doing whatever the behavior is. What do you, you know, what do you do? I mean, cause there's so many factors and like, I guess this is where, this is where it gets tricky and in going into that, the science part of everything, because there's so many factors because, you know, what, what's the owner's commitment level going to be like not only to actually work with their dog, but then also the financial commitment to pay a professional to help them, especially if they've recycled a few trainers already. And now the dog has also practiced this response, maybe because it wasn't addressed properly or it was accidentally reinforced for something that now has become more reinforcing than anything else. What do you do? And and I I know I'm not giving an example. Um, but like if if we take the example of sheep killing, right? Sheep killing is probably the clearest example, isn't it? Like if you have a if you have let's say we've got a bunch of German shepherds that have gone out and killed a bunch of sheep, because they're they're these cases that we get through that is incredibly intrinsically reinforcing. It's biological fulfillment. It's everything that dog wants to do has been done, and 
and and its predation, which we know even neurologically is quite different to other other types of behaviour, and incredibly difficult to interrupt. I, I like the example of uh, predation for these sorts of things as well, because that the ethic the, the ethics are slightly. Uh, we're helped with the ethical side of it because we're not just talking about the welfare of the of the dog, are we? We're talking about the welfare of the sheep and the animals that it's killing. And 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 really, when it comes to aversives, death is the most aversive thing. I think we can all agree, right? Like in most cases, I've worked with dogs that have been. I worked with a Vizsla once that was buried under the ground with her sister alive. Her sister died. She managed to get out with two broken legs and she dragged herself to the main road, right, where she was picked up. And then she was rescued by this lovely couple. But it always reminds me that, like, dogs will choose life. Like, in in 99.9% of the time, the dogs will choose to live. And so when we look at the Lima scale, death has to be the last we have there has to be like no stern stone unturned to choose to euthanize a dog and so when it comes to those cases for me I do take a kind of a lemur approach um knowing my own limitations of my skill set so I will do everything I can in my toolbox and I'll get second pair of eyes and third pair of eyes on these cases to do everything they can in their their skill set and then I'll go to people who use methods that I don't use to, to look at those dogs because I believe that I'd rather if if trusted if a trusted balance trainer who I know is very skilled comes over and he says look I can fix that and I can fix that quickly and the dog doesn't have to die and it's not going to fight any other dogs and cause injury or it's not going to kill any other sheep right and I'm in a situation where I genuinely think my skill set I can't do that then I think it's I think it is um I think it's ethical for the owner and the dog to, to say, okay, I'm 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 gonna pass you over to my colleague and and talk to him about whether or not you're happy with the methods that he's gonna use because I'm 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 out I'm out of ideas. Now touch wood, apart from predation cases, I've never come across a dog that I haven't been able to work through to a solution that's been safe and happy for the owner. Um but with the exception of predation cases. But I do I I, I do I do believe in that. And I do think that what you said about owners' time and money is is really relevant because I, I like the Lima thing. I like the Lima idea, but I think that it doesn't include in it, which it has to, time and efficacy. Like time and efficacy have to fall into that ethical model, I think, because it's all right to say, choose the least intrusive, minimally aversive thing to, to use, but that's not, that is also effective in the right time scale. Do you know what I mean? It has to be yeah. effective, right? otherwise, otherwise, I'll tell you a story of um, in a kennels that I worked in, there was a dog that was um, frightened of cars, uh, was frightened of cars. Yeah, that's right. And um, and so I went in and the staff had done this really long chart of how they were going to work with it, with a clicker to click and treat this dog for coming out um, and going towards the car and looking at the car and getting in the car. Obviously, this dog couldn't be rehomed for the entire time that this was happening, right? And 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 this this plan, which was lovely, was going to take months, months and months and months. So I said, look, screw that. Pick it up, put it in the car. We'll drive it down the road to the park, right? So we picked it up, chucked it in the car, drove it down the park, road to the park, got it out of the park, played with it for like 20 minutes. Yeah, go, 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 go. Good, 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 good. Went back, did it again 15 minutes later, did it again half an hour later, did it again an hour later. By the end of the day, the dog was running and jumping in the car. Now, was that minimally aversive, least intrusive? No, no, absolutely not. The, the clicker training one would have been. But 
ethically, I, I wholeheartedly believe that was the right thing to do for that dog because it meant the next week it could go to its new home. So yeah. time, time and, and how effective something is has to go in there. Yeah, Vinny always, it's funny, every time we, we discuss the concept or the, the uh, philosophy of Lima, Vinny's always asking the, the question of the time piece because, and it, it, it's true, it's not something that is mentioned or talked about a lot. In, in one of the episodes I had talked about a case I was working with that was very reactive. The dog was extremely reactive and I worked with them for months and it was going nowhere. And then I decided to put a head halter and a prong collar on the dog. And in three sessions, we were able to walk by other dogs where the dog was checking back in with us. And, and I, I think I think the other important thing to think about in a case like that as well is the stress of the problematic behavior to the dog. Like, yeah. where does that fall yeah. into it? Because yeah. whilst the dog is reactive, depending on the motivation of the dog, obviously, if you've got a dog like Archie, it's loving it. But whilst the dog is reactive in many cases, it's highly, highly stressful. And so so to prolong the stress of the animal performing the behaviour, not to mention the stress of the owners having to deal with it, mm -hmm. and with that increased management failure piece on top of that, all of that has to go in there, doesn't it? Yeah. And that's where I think that, that, again, like that goes back to the science thing, you know, we're not like, we need to take a lot of things into account. All those months that that dog was reacting was, a, was extremely stressful, not only for the dog, but for the family. And then all of a sudden within three lessons, we were able to achieve what the goal was for the family. I'm not saying like, I'm not blinded to the fact that it was, it was suppressing the behavior because it was but the dog was able to at least start engaging and we were able to open up a window essentially yeah. where we were able to now reinforce behavior and play and all these things that we couldn't do before. Yeah. So I, it just makes me think when I was reading some of the, the studies and uh, you know, I just made me think, well, what about these situations? Like they're, the studies aren't taking this, these detailed things into account, which yeah. is a problem in a way because we're, sure promoting you know whatever we're promoting whichever science you want to believe and it's like well but we're it's a one-sided so i guess my next question for you is going to be like where do we how how can we get our colleagues or or you know dog owners that are paying attention to things like this like what should we be looking at to make our observations and understanding of of the science more objective I think I think it's really, really difficult. And like, I hate to be someone who likes, like, I don't really like the idea of regulation for a few reasons, but I do think that it could help here in, in, in a level, just for the level of transparency, it would have to be completely inclusive. But I do think that then we could have a lowest benchmark of practical skills and knowledge in order to start charging as a dog trainer, right? And, and then within that you know you'd need like an app that was kind of like a cross between TripAdvisor and uber i suppose whereby <laughs> you'd then put on there you'd put you know you'd have all these symbols saying this person has attended seven courses in the last four years or this person has attended 27 courses in the last four years and this person clearly specializes in these things because this is how this that you know they've got to 
Mondio ring level three. And so, so you'd build like these profiles that would be completely transparent, as well as the reviews of the owners. Um, in terms, and, and and I guess you could end up having on that, you would end up having some level of smart goal whereby you right at the very beginning of your session, you say this is the objective, and then you'd you'd fill out that, you know, it'd be it'd be kind of almost compulsory in my weird little dream world. Um it'd be almost compulsory for you to fill that out for each case. So you'd go and it'd be very simple and you'd just go the date. Like this is the date. This is when the client's starting. The objective of the case is to do like dog aggression. And then you'd have different categories. So you might go um, to be able to socialize with other dogs off lead. Okay. So like that really, you'd say where the dog started. So you'd say like reactivity level of 10 or five or whatever it is. And you'd have little metrics in there. And then you'd be able to complete it and have the review come up. So that you'd be able to see very clearly then, you know, and uh, you'd be able to get very clear data on this this trainer with this problem on average takes this long to reach its resolution or whatever. And and, and then you'd be able to ability check, I suppose, <laughs> trainers who <laughs> booked them. Um, and then also one of the biggest problems in our industry is the lack of data we have about trainers. So like we don't like there's no country that has any proper um proper data on how many dog trainers there are in the country there's like nobody knows like how many people are like we don't know how many dog trainers there are we don't know how many complaints come from all the balance trainers will tell you that the vast majority of their clientele have been to positive training and it's ineffective all the positive reinforcement trainers will go the vast majority of my clients come from balance trainers and it was abusive and but we don't know any of that stuff we don't know we there's no way for people to complain so we can't tell where complaints are coming from there's no way like we don't know in it so in order for us to begin to get some kind of level we need to regulate more as much for data collection as any other purpose so that we can at least start getting the answers to those those bigger questions because uh, otherwise otherwise we're just relying on scientists for who who are never out in the field training dogs forming definitions and and doing what is most of the time really shitty science so I'm going to ask a question that's going to be long winded and all over the place. So everyone get ready because yes, <laughs> I want to touch on a lot of I, I want to touch on a lot of what you were just what you were just talking about and then bring it back to this. So when reading the studies and, and a contradictory kind of dialogues that I hear is. Balance training or using electric collars, choke collars, prong collars is like easier. It's an it's an easier way. Um it takes more skill to use positive reinforcement. And when you look at the studies, it seems like they're showing that, you know, for recall, dogs that are trained with electric collars are not recalling as, you know, efficiently as the dogs that are using positive reinforcement. And do you want me to finish or? or no, you... no, I just want to add in there that science that you're talking about, the Mills and China stuff was such a load of bullshit. You can just. <laughs> well, so that's where I'm going. So so I'll just say like where where I thought if they would if studies would have came out and said, look, to me, using tools is more of like an ethical thing. Like, is the dog shut down, fearful, nervous? Are, are we causing undue harm? But it's like when I started noticing that the studies are showing that not using tools is more effective that's where i started going huh that's weird because i've always thought of not using the tools as almost i don't want to say like you're almost making it harder on yourself which there's nothing wrong with that like you do mandoring which is a very you know i i'm very new to it i've been doing it for about a year um 
I don't think you're at an advantage. Maybe I'm wrong. Like, do you feel like you're at an advantage that you're not using tools? Because I think it is interesting uh, that you're no, you're saying the science. Yeah, not. you're saying the science is kind of bunk, but then you're also not using tools, which is interesting. Like, that's why I feel like your perspective is very valuable because you're not using the tools, but you're also saying that because you know, that's the thing that gets me is when people are like, oh, well, you know, these balance trainers, like they don't know what's most effective. And to tie that into what you were just talking about, and we've spoken on the podcast about this is the one community has look at my credentials in terms of certifications and schools and look what like my grades on these things. Whereas the balance community might like, again, like, I don't know if Ivan has any type of certification, but I know he does really well in a sport. So you look at that and it's like, and it is hard. And I see where if you are just a pet parent, you're like, whoa, look at what that guy can do with his dog is going to impact your decision to hire him more than like, look at all those letters behind his name. You know what I mean? So what, what do you think about like, like, is it, is it really more effective? Like it is effective for more thing. You know, like I could see, you know, if your dog pees on the floor and you smack him in the head, like, yeah, obviously for potty training, using positive reinforcement is, is going to be better. But, and then back to the studies, some of them, it's not a mix. Like it's, it's not representing what people are actually doing. Like they're not just going out and going, Hey, come. And then when the dog doesn't come, they're just shocking the hell out of it. You know, like there's other things going on there. So, you know, I always just saw as, you know, balance training or using a tool is not like taking a steroid, but it's you're you're adding something to your repertoire. And by not using it, you are handicapping yourself a little bit or, or taking, you know, something away and you have to put more thought into what you're doing. Not to say that, again, I've made this argument. Some of the balance trainers are using an extremely high level of thought into how they're using their tools or, you know, even like I've taken electronic collar courses that made my head hurt. Cause I was like, holy shit. <laughs> like, you know, like I thought we just had to press the button, you know? So, so I know that was like long. Now I have a pyramid place, tattooed but... on my arm so that I can tell when I'm meant to do it. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> absolutely. So the, the first thing it makes me think about is um, the fact that I do think that there's two human elements that we have to put into perspective here. One of them is how reinforcing using punishment is. And we, we've known that for forever um, out of the dog training realm. We know that forever. Like it's incredibly it's incredibly reinforcing to punish someone for something and see a behavior stop. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that does you know, with great power comes great responsibility, as Spider-Man says. And um, I think <laughs> it's it's really important um i would say my biggest criticism if we're going to lump people into camps of the of the balance community is the overuse of those tools once they get going um you know you see them being used at the drop of a hat as soon as i went to oh, a i could use it for this and this and this and this and then it's and just like for that. everything for sure and and like for example napopo like the napopo uh way of using tools really states that you should move back to reinforcement if the dog struggles in a new place right so if you're doing your positions and you're decided you're going to do them today on a golf buggy then the dog fails them you should be moving back to your reinforcement because you're saying that the dog doesn't know it in this environment right have i ever seen an apopo instructor even use that use that no never 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 if the dog if the dog fails they're going to use the collar and and they always do like it doesn't it, it works in theory but in practice once the collar system is on it's used the other my other quick criticism of that very quickly is the fact that people don't use it like I've, I've never seen a collar that's only used to activate a dog it's always used to correct a dog as well like I, 
and and to me those that blurs the lines and I, I'd love to see a dog that's only that that is only ever been trained via activation on the collar like I think that'd be super interesting to see the emotional response of that dog so what what I guess what I'm trying to get to at there is the fact that using the collar is incredibly reinforcing for the trainer and therefore it then it that what used to be this is my last point of call or this not necessarily my last point of call but it's it goes somewhere on my lima chart and at some point I say well I know it's aversive to the dog that I'm going to use it becomes it's going to be my first point of call because it's it's easy and I know how what I'm doing and it's quite clear and I can just I just get it on the dog because I think I'm going to end up getting there anyway um and so that becomes a problem um because because then it's it is overused and I think that to to help that the order by which we learn to use different methods should be should be something that's commonplace in dog training right so I think that you should have to have used like I don't know let's st- let's say we start with fucking free shaping right Although the frustration levels, you could argue. Yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> yeah, let's start with luring. Let's start with luring, right? Okay, so we're going to start with luring. <laughs> a brand new trainer and we start with luring. And then we move to capturing. And then we move to shaping. And then we move to free shaping. And as the things, as there's more and more risk to the animal's welfare, the 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 the, the trainer should be proficient in each tool before they move on to the next, rather than starting with those tools that use aversives, which actually many trainers now do. I think that should be, you shouldn't be allowed to do that you should you should have to have worked up this this other route first because I do think that as well actually in the in those zero to five behaviors I think it's actually usually more effective and easier to train a dog with positive reinforcement yeah a pet dog training your average joe pet puppy to to not to piss on the carpet and to um you know to settle at night and to you know, to you don't need any of those sorts of that stuff. Yeah, like no, for, no. Like for those basic stuff, you don't, you don't, you don't need them. You can, you can train all of that stuff. You don't. There's no, not, not even need them. That you, you wouldn't want them. It's easier and quicker to use like positive reinforcement based stuff, right? It's mm-hmm. only when you start heading into heading towards your competing motivator work. Oh, we lost her again. Oh, oh, we wait, hold on. We lost you for like one second. It said right. once you get into the competing motivating work. Yeah, when you get into like competing motivators and stuff like that, that's when there's that gray area of when you go, mm, that would be easier. Like that would, and to, to me, it is it, it almost falls dead on with your competing motivators. So for Mondio, for example, I can like the obedience is a piece of piss for me with toys and food. I don't need anything else. For toys and food, it's a piece of piss. I can train good obedience. I got like full scores of my dog at the last trial in my obedience I can I can do obedience without that it's it's not it's not hard it's when the bite work happens and I'm trying to get my dog to <laughs> stop biting yeah <laughs> but that, that that's when it's that's when it's more problematic or when I'm trying to keep him in contact till when there's decoys running around and getting me to ride a horse it's um you know and and predation and dog aggression when the motivation of the dog is to do the thing and you're saying not to do the thing that's when it starts to get stickier and that's when it starts to head into that tricky tricky scenario where you go i think like the the like i said at the very beginning the more complex those behaviors are and the more competing motivators they are i think then the then when it comes to the ease, when it comes to t- just time and efficacy, forget about ethics and emotional contingents and leaking and, um, you know, uh, the misuse of those and all that kind of stuff. When it just comes to time and efficacy, I think when you get up to those very high level and those very 
more complicated behavior problems, resource guarding, severe dog dog aggression in a, in a dog that's highly motivated to be dog aggressive, um, predation, those sorts of cases, then I do think that using the tools is easier, quicker, and possibly, oh God, dare I sound like saying this, more 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 effective on that oh short my god break. there's a sound bite there's a sound bite for the episode right no 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 i do think it's possible to overcome those behaviors using positive reinforcement techniques but do i think it's as quick probably not no now here's um, now here's my question while we're on like the sport of monitoring and then because i feel like it can get right to the ethical argument mm. if you have a malinois and you're doing bite work and its favorite thing in the world is biting the decoy. And let's mm-hmm. just say for argument's sake, you can't you can't change it with positive reinforcement or not using a tool. Mm-hmm. So you either have to never let your dog bite a decoy again, just manage it. No, don't, you know what, Mondo Ring's not for that dog. Why would you why would you make the dog do a sport where you're now using a tool? Or you're gonna use a tool, there might be some slight discomfort or stress on your dog, but in return that dog is going to be able to do something that it extremely enjoys and has a lot of you know excitement doing i know your answer i mean obviously you're not using tools but if if you were met with that where where would you fall on that ethically so it's really hard when we talk about sports because a lot of people don't understand the biological fulfillment that man and my does get yes from yes um, and there is there is a quality of life issue if my dog can't especially my dogs that are not just as a breed, but as lines bred to do that. Um, mm-hmm. I do think they could have a quality of, I do think they could have a decent quality of life without money ring um, for sure. But my, my, I guess my, um, my answer to that, which my answer to that is going to be that it depends because it depends on the way you use the tools as well, because I'm, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm equal illiterate even if I don't use them myself, mm-hmm. um, I'm equal illiterate enough to you to know that there are incredibly elegant ways of using those tools that are hardly mm-hmm. aversive to those dogs at all, right? Mm-hmm. And it comes back, I guess, right to the beginning of their definition of aversive. Is it tolerable stress that the dog can control and overcome? And is the Pavlovian response to going back into the Mondio field going to be incredibly positive? Yes. My dog's going to still be desperate to go back in there. And my dog is going to know that he can control those very low level aversives that are in the tolerable stress continuum. So if I was met with that problem, then I think maybe that would make make me at least question my answer rather than go, no, the sport isn't for me. But thankfully, I've, I've never I've never had that question. My my um, what that made me think about was uh, the fact that my mentor when I was uh a young a younger self uh said to me once if i could give your dog to michael ellis this is when i had my dog reactive pit bull um and it was when i was really struggling with that whole piece it was when i was because uh, you don't get taught any of this any of this stuff at university do you? you don't like you come out and you can on paper train a dog but you can't actually train a dog to and mm-hmm. um and i remember coming out and getting getting this pit bull and him completely out dogging me and ripping up every rule book I ever had and like just being a total nightmare. And um and I remember Ryan saying to me, like, if you could, if you could give the dog to Michael Ellis and he said to you, look, I am gonna use the prong and the e collar on your dog, but I'm gonna give your dog back and he's gonna be not dog aggressive at all. 
right? He's not going to be, there's going to be no level of dog aggression and you're not going to see any other changes. You're not going to see any other, but you're going to have a life now where you can take him to every dog seminar. You can take him to like to anything you want to. You can take him down the dog park and let him off a lead if you want to. Would you do it? And I remember that was the first time in my professional life when he said that, that I questioned it. And I remember thinking to myself, oh, fuck. Oh, that's so difficult. That's so difficult because it would give him such a better, better quality of life. And it's going to take me years. And it did take me years. And I did manage to get to a point where I could take him to dog seminars. And like, many people would have met me there with him and, and do the things that I wanted to do with him and compete and all that sort of stuff. But it did take me years to get to that place. Um, and arguably, if I hadn't got to that place, I wouldn't be the trainer I am now. So maybe it's a good job. But I remember that... that there is definitely the ethical consideration there where you go, oh, but the amount of stress that he went through, the other ethical dilemma that I was posed with only two weeks ago when it comes to this real tricky thing was I was at Mondio. Um, this is a couple of months ago, actually, but I was at Mondio and I had a little barking problem with my dog in the defence. So for people who don't know Mondio, the um, Defence Against the Handler exercise needs your dog to stay in contact heel. He's not wearing a collar or a lead and he stays in contact heel position with you. So he has to stay contact with your body the whole way through while you have two decoys. So two men in the suits that tell you what to do and they tell you to do all kinds of ridiculous things like dancing and hanging things on washing lines and getting on bikes and all sorts of stuff the dog has to stay in heel unless the decoys put two hands and slap you and if they put two hands and slap you the dog's allowed to come off you and bite and you don't cue the dog to do this the dog does it himself anyway so I'm doing my defense against a handler and I start to get a little bit of a barking problem right and my dog starts to bark and in Mondo ring unlike in PSA barking is they don't like barking because the, the idea is that the dog's wasting too much energy and barking and that often dogs will lose their head and they kind of forget what they're doing and get a bit lost in the ring if they start barking. So Blake starts barking um, and my trainer, who's a balance trainer, just says to me, just just check, check him on check him on his collar, on his flat collar. And I'm like, no, come on, you know, I don't do that. And he's like, just 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 check him because you need to provide him. With and I'm like, no, you know, I don't do this. So instead, for about six weeks, I work through this little protocol where every time he barks, all the decoys have to stand still. I walk him off the field and I bring him back on the field again and do it. And it put me in a really tricky ethical dilemma because my coach was saying to me, look, we can get this done in one session and your dog is going to be super clear. At the moment, your dog is getting more and more frustrated because you keep taking him off the field and you, the decoys keep stopping and he's not really understanding why. And I'm going, oh. This is sure the, I'm sure the decoys appreciated it too, right? And um and so it put me in this real sticky one because I it, like it was that whole clarity piece where I was going, oh, in my little because for me there's like these different pillars and they're all they're like a weird little weighing machine and each one has different weight and you have to work out which one's the heaviest weight and I'm going oh clarity clarity is really important to me but as an ethic as, as a as a tool I suppose or as a method I, I've never used a correction on the lead like that before and I don't want to and then I'm going in my head I'm going but that's me I don't want to because as a professional boundary I've put this boundary on even though I can see it's going to be clearer for my dog who is frustrated yeah and exactly. I, and I didn't... was just Oh, go ahead, go taking ahead. him away could be making him could be more aversive than you just going yeah. hey shut up sure, sure. <laughs> hey shut yeah. up for a second I'll let you do what you want to do <laughs> absolutely and I, I worked through my process and it worked and it took a while and everyone got pissed off with me but but it worked <laughs> but 
now I look back at it in hindsight, it was a really interesting moment for me because it made me go, oh, this is a situation where I am putting myself and my own professional ethics above what I believe to be truly best for my dog. And that's hard, man. Mm-hmm. I, I, yeah, I was just going to I was just going to say, so uh, one, I'm thinking in my head, like how how possibly how frustrating is this for your dog, especially if you're removing your dog from the situation as opposed to just telling your dog to knock it off knock essentially. It off. Yeah. And, <laughs> and would that be clearer? And also, uh, and hearing what you're saying, like I'm under, I totally get what you're saying in terms of, I like, Ooh, I just don't feel comfortable doing that to my dog. And I also, I'm just thinking, is it really going to even affect your dog? Not in at that all. moment, Not because, and I, I have like a good example. I, one of, when I started uh, sheep herding with one of my Kelpies, he was, he was in the zone and everything. And my instructor said, I'm going to throw the feed sack towards him. So he gets off of the stock because he's coming in too tight and it could get dangerous for the stock. Okay, fine. His timing happened to be the same time my dog was there and my dog got hit in the face and i was like <gasps> you know like and my, in your head in your head did you go in your head did you go oh, my balance trainer now you're a balance trainer <laughs> now that's <laughs> it <laughs> my my dog was like what the fuck was that wait i don't give a shit right now let me keep working and like yeah. we like my instructor and i still laugh about it because I was I was so nervous, but it was a great moment to learn and see, well, that dog is in that drivey mode right now. Like everything everything going else going on really didn't matter. For sure. And, For sure. and it just made it and that just made me think about like your situation because like I wouldn't have done what happened, but it just happened to be the timing was perfect the way it happened. You know, and, and it was honestly, it was cool to see because it was, because if that happened in my house, he was, he'd be in a totally different state than when he was working the stock. And so I'm thinking the same thing for your situation. Yeah. And my dogs are like, he's, he's hard as nails, robust anyway. Like he's the kind of dog who, like when I first got him, I got him as a rescue at 18 months and he was a, a little shit when I first got him and he used to camp surf and he'd like knock hands off like smash ching 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 and you'd find him still on the counter like, doo, doo, doo. like he, he just he, he doesn't really give a toss like he's he's incredibly ro- like environmentally robust like very very so like I don't doubt that if I did it he like he would have gone like he wouldn't have given a shit hmm. uh, but but it is it's that thing isn't it it's that thing where unfortunately what's happened is that we've we've decided that we that there's two camps well there's three camps there's yanking crank there's balanced and there's positive. Finally, someone said three. I keep saying this every freaking yeah. time we have this conversation. Everyone's like, there's two. Like, no, there's three. There is three. Finally. There's, three. there's, 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 the, there's the dog only gets told when he gets it wrong. There's the dog gets told when he's right and wrong. And then there's the dog gets told when he's right, basically. Right. And 
the thing that my my problem the, the one of the problems with it with it all is the fact that actually when we look back in time positive reinforcement training or whatever we're going to call it started as a backlash to the ank and crank trainers and it used to be an umbrella that included balance training and if we read like gene donaldson's early books and like even don't shoot the dog like Karen Pryor's early books it all included loads of like negative reinforcement stuff and punishment and slapping the dog like i can't believe you just said that Doing this on the dog's paws when they're on the counter and, you know, using no. And even Victoria Stilwell's early shows had loads of had loads of stuff in it now that the, the positive community would go, oh, you couldn't do that. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, because it used to include all of that, because it only happened to say we shouldn't be putting dogs in a situation where we're making them get it wrong and then just telling them when they get it wrong. We should tell them when they get it right, too. And so it used to include all of it. And then very slowly it's there's it's formed like two bits of it. So it used to all be positive reinforcement based based training. And now it's balanced and positive reinforcement based under the same thing. And so because of that, it, it, it means there's, you know, there are a lot of trainers I know. There, there's trainers that call themselves balanced that are a lot closer to what I do than trainers that call themselves positive reinforcement based trainers, you know. So it's it's such a, a weird thing. But what's happened is that we've got these three camps and we've got tools and methods that are synonymous with each camp rather than the emotional contingent of the dog. Really, what should be is we should have like how aversive something is. And really, if we were clever, we'd go well, positive based, positive based or like forgetting fucking Skinner, just slash that off. But positive based trainers um, are happy to go up to this point of the scale of aversive balanced trainers are happy to go up to this scale of the aversive and then uh, like yank and crank trainers are happy to go up to this scale of aversive for the dog really and and then you'd be able to put the tools across all of them because if you were able to use the tools in a way which fits under the how aversive it is for the dog here then you could still be a positive trainer and still use an e-collar because it's about the emotional response of the dog and it's about how the dog feels and it's about the ethics for the dog. It's no longer about the specific tool or the specific method or all of that kind of stuff. Because it doesn't really make sense to have the methods in it because there's situations, like I said, where I felt really uncomfortable because I didn't want to use a leash pop, but only because it was a synonymous with a type of trainer that isn't me yeah. and not because it was for the ethics of the dog. And if I just, if I just kind of lived you know, died on the sword or whatever it's called and just gone, no, I'm happy as long as I'm not using an aversive over this level, then I would have done the leash pops and it would have been better for my dog. I'm glad you said that because I think it just, it's good. It's like a good reminder, but also just the the process to look or think about things because I think a lot of the time there's what you might think is ethical is going to be different for someone else. Mm-hmm. And, and then that brings a whole nother freaking conversation. I mean, even like the concept of Lima there, like, as we've been learning, there's many, there's a few different concepts of what people consider Lima to be. Some will apply the use of tools and then others won't. And, you know, it, 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 there's, so there's a lot of different variations on it, which gets confusing. For sure, because the Lima scale really is what we're talking about, about how aversive something is, I guess, because how how aversive and how invasive it is, is going to be just up that scale, isn't it? But like, it, it's funny because the vast majority of Lima trainers will will only use up to a certain level of aversive. And then but that, depends that on really the, Lima? But because that, Lima that, yes, 
I agree with what you're saying, but I think that's going to also depend on where they fall in line as a professional. Because, because like if, if you're looking at a professional who's more balanced, but thoughtful in the way that they're doing things, they may use Lima differently or apply certain tools. Whereas, you know, I mean, like if you go to the APDT website and you, you fill out the form that says, find out if you're Lima compliant. And so I, I, it's the first question said something about like, um, do you use tools? Yes or no. So I was curious and I said, yes, I use tools. And then automatically the answer was, well, then you're not Lima compliant. And so it's weird because it's, it's like, so it, there's a lot of different variations of, of that, um, you know, and, and, you know, if you're gonna, if you're more, I guess, more of a positive trainer, you're going to follow a Lima scale to a degree and then stop like what you were just describing. And then maybe if you're a balanced trainer, you might go as far as you need to go, but then also you may not start at a more positive level or something like that. You might just jump right to a tool, depending on where you fall. Competency in as well. Competency. If you've only got three tools in your toolkit, then, you know, yeah, you're only going to have three levels that you're going to be able to go to. So competency is a, is, is a massive factor in that, a massive factor. It's funny think- as well, because I do think that exposure really changes your opinion. So um, I was lucky enough to go and spend some time at Michael Ellis's um, a while ago, a couple of years ago, um, as well as a, com- a, a bunch of other trainers. And then subsequently moving to Spain, I don't have any option other than to train with balanced trainers. Um, so I've had a high level of exposure. And I do... I do remember the first time that I saw um, like an e-collar being used to correct behavior and and thinking, if I'm dead honest, because of the, and I will use the word propaganda, because of the propaganda and that sits underneath that tool, I do remember going, oh, is that it? <laughs> like, I was like, it was, almost, it was almost a level of, oh, oh, I thought it was going to be, oh, all right. So that's, that's that session. And oh yeah, the dog's doing it. Like, I do remember thinking like, oh, I thought it was going to be like, in my head, the dog was going to scream out in pain and dive to the floor and like all this kind of stuff. And I was like, oh, oh, it just twitched its ear. That's, and that's what we're going to, that's what you're going to, okay, that's, that's that then. Um, And yeah, they are misused massively and blah, 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 blah. But I do, I do think that, that there needs to be, I, I do, I do wish that people were better educated in the tools that they don't like. But I think that's why education matters. And and I notice, you know, even on your own post, what people reply with is like, oh, well, I'm not going to learn from an animal abuser. Like I got I got shit on one time for recommending a balanced trainer for like his tug videos that didn't have any tools or punishment in it at all. And everyone came on me like, oh, why would you ever give money to an abuser? Right. Yeah. So, I got I got, yeah. I got I got criticized for the same thing. I said, like, um, at the time, I really liked the Learberg balls and a rope. And I remember going, oh, mm-hmm. Learberg do really good ones. And then just people going, oh, my God, no, I would never buy from Learberg. And you're like, what? Do you not buy from Tesco's because you don't like some of the ethics behind their chicken? Like, what, like I don't understand. <laughs> people are people. Are, pe- there are people that are crazy. <laughs> so so just back to the effectiveness again, um, just to bring that up. Uh, if if we were to do more studies or we, you know, how would those studies be done? And then what if, what if we did find out that using certain tools or balanced methods were more effective Then what, then does the recommendations change? Um, well, it was really could... interesting. I posted a question to my students, right. And I have to admit, I was disappointed by some of their answers. I'm sorry if you're listening, <laughs> not all of their answers, 
if you're listening it wasn't you it wasn't yours <laughs> your answer was, was the best answer. <laughs> but, um, but so I wrote I wrote a question and I wrote if if the science came back the science came back if studies revealed and there was a body of work that highlighted that um the use of e-collars could be done in a way that was ethical that was not aversive to the dog was timely and was exceptionally effective would you let would you take the time to learn to use these tools and predominantly people said no and I was like huh, huh? like it could I couldn't I couldn't put two and two together I was like but but no 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 because then I'm saying that they're not really horrible for the dog and that they're timely and effective like why wouldn't you what of course your recommendation should change right like it, that's it, where like, it becomes more of like a religious that's... ideology where it's more back to that dichotomy of like this way is more effective versus this way is more ethical and then it seems like the people that go down one of those I mean I am more of like an ethical type of thing like if I don't want to use the tools because like if that dog looks sad and shut down and you know that doesn't make me feel good you know yeah. but and if it if it's going to take me six months to teach my dog to come when I call them versus one week, but I'm doing it in a way that has a strong history of reinforcement. And my relationship with my dog is getting stronger versus just like, hey, you better do this right now or else you're gonna get this. I'll take the six months, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah, and, and for me, I think it's also about a cohesive, um, a cohesive and complete communication system. Like I like to believe that I've got five dogs. I like to believe that I can communicate pretty effectively with them, and in a, in a way that's pretty predictable as well. Like, like I, whilst I, I don't use um, I don't use tools and stuff. I do. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna lie and say I don't say no to my dog or chastise them for doing stuff when they're like just fucking about or being naughty in real life, and they know. That. <laughs> Like, you know, if I leave a chicken on the side and one of my dog goes, oh, I'm going to have a look at that. I will. Oh, wait, get off and collar grab her. You don't just let them eat it? Come on. I'm not just going to let her eat it. I'm not going to start paying four feet on the floor because it's, it's you know, like I, I, I do believe, I believe in having an honest relationship with them. And well, I and, that, and I like that you bring that up because I find relationship also impacts what even what a punisher is. Like mm -hmm. I... Like, look, I, I punish my dog sometimes. My seven-year-old dog is way different than my one-year-old dog is way different than if I'm at a client's house and I'm meeting dog for the first time, you know? So like another thing some of these studies don't take into account and I feel like is a huge thing is the relationship you have with your dog. Um, I'm noticing, especially with my Malinois, that if I kind of catch him doing something and, and like he kind of knows he's being a little, he's like being a little jackass, like he kind of, oh, you got me. Like, it's almost like that. Like, oh, you got me, I know. Versus like the, hey, this is unfair. I don't understand this. Yeah. And I don't know what you want from me. And I'm just going to freeze and stare at you. And like now, you know, I never push him that hard. But a dog that might then be like, hey, man, you're being unfair. And that might turn into leak, you know, aggression or, or some type of a handler redirection or something like that. And and I see that. And and it's and it's funny that now that I have a relationship with him, yeah, if he jumps up on the table, I could poke him on the butt with my finger and go, hey, dude, what are you doing? And he looks yeah. at me like, oh, you got me. And like, you know, he wags his body and he's not looking at me like, oh my God, I'm scared of you now. And like, I'm shut down and fearful. He knows because whereas if I had a stray dog off the street that came into my house and went up on the table and I poked him in the butt, he might turn around and bite my hand. You For know, sure. like, who are you? The example I give my clients is like, if your brother or sister or mom told you something negative about you, 
like, hey, I've been noticing lately that you've been, you know, missing out on fan, whatever. You would take that differently than if just some idiot at the grocery store was like, hey, you know what? You're an asshole. You know what I mean? Because sure. there's no relationship there. So, you know, that no criticism is coming from a different place. Like there's a predictability of rules in the house, right? They know they're not mm-hmm. allowed to do certain stuff. Like, yeah. And they definitely have those different character responses. Like my um my youngest, Malibit, she's really sassy. Like she's, she's so... <laughs> She didn't have an adolescence because she was born an adult, but she was, um, <laughs> she's, she's really sassy. And like, if I say to her, like, nay, like, as in, don't do that. I go, nay, yeah. she, she looks at me, like, where Blake <laughs> would do exactly what you're doing, like, a little, little goofy. She yeah. Really indignantly. Uh, and she'll just give me this like, look of disgust and stop doing How it. How dare. Like, oh, <laughs> bitch. <laughs> but they definitely do all have those little character responses and that dialogue i think is is super important and as you say that dialogue is not something that is taken into consideration in any study when it comes to using these things when it comes to telling a dog off for doing something versus well, also if those studies are even studying dogs in a home because some of them like there was one, there was <laughs> ding, one ding, in ding. 2000 <laughs> Yeah, there was one in 2006, 2007 I've written down here. It's called Clinical Signs Caused by the Use of Electronic Collars, uh, Training Collars on Dogs in Everyday Life Situations. <laughs> She's already it was with eyes. 17 <laughs> laboratory bred beagles. That's what it said. 17 labrador- laboratory bred beagles. So it's like, and, and the best part was oh. they were they were in a kennel and only taken out every day for an hour and a half for training. That was it. Oof. And the and it was in a building. Terrible as well. The contingencies are terrible in that. Study. Yeah. So and and you know so it's kind of like well, you know, we're getting these results and we're testing them on dogs that aren't even living in a home in in a fa- with a family, dogs that maybe are are social and want to interact with people. They're not even getting that piece. Worse still. What's okay. more aversive? What's more Absolutely. aversive? <laughs> Absolutely. And, and they, they they forget about the, the the human element, the fact that the dogs are, are born to want to be close to us. You know, Scott, there was that horrible study by Scott where he he used, um he, he electrocuted uh, puppies every time a hand was reached out towards them at various ages, Oof. right? It was six weeks, 10 weeks and 12 weeks, I believe. Um, and every time the hands went and touched the puppies, um, they used an electric stim and stimulate the puppies for, for the hand coming out. And they found that actually between uh, at six weeks and at 12 weeks, it had no detrimental effect. The puppies carried on hmm. seeking out human, human interaction, irrespective of that aversive, because that's how important humans are to puppies. Like hmm. that's how important, you know, that's how 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 hard we've bred these little beagle puppies to want to be around us and to want to to when well, you hear about like horrible abuse cases and the dogs are still super sweet and resilient and like yeah. even are still seeking out the owner which is like yeah, that's yeah. almost what makes it most sad to me i've got a dog here that over three years was beaten badly enough that she's got a broken pelvis two broken back legs and broken ribs that will never repair as well as a shoulder blade that was pulled out of its socket and then left so she so she's got another like an additional she's made us board herself another socket um she'll be on painkillers the rest of her life little Mally. and she is the sweetest dog like out of all of my manuals the most affectionate the most like just beautifully beautifully behaved i can take her into the center of malaga and she's like love me i love everybody like it's it's dogs are designed to to have this interaction with us that is like playful and loving but also they have to live in our in our worlds to do that and they need to 
need to know the, the rules to some extent. Um, but talking of studies, there's one study that I must go through before I go, which is yes. the, the, the main one that everybody quotes because it drives me absolutely <laughs> nuts. And that's the Mills and China one, which is one where they... Um, because this, this is the main one. It's the one that people use the most. And it's the thing. And are we that, talking? Are we talking? This is the one that people use the most to say the science says. Is that what we're yes. saying? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And um, and it's this study that was done. So so first off, one of the problems with it is that it was done such a long time ago. So it was done, I think, in 2006. It was the one that when you talked about efficacy, um, mm-hmm. we'll come back to this in a minute, because the, the efficacy study they used the same footage, right? So when they were measuring um, the recall and the sit, the trainers who were training with uh, in those three groups, the e-collar, the e-collar trainers that weren't using the e-collar and the- um, Like random, yeah. Uh. The, the, the positive reinforcement trainers, they were never, they weren't told they were being, that they were training recall or sit. Because they, huh. they they were they they filmed them for a different study about predatory behavior, and then they used that footage to work out which of those three training methods was more ethical, right? So they used the the predated footage, right? So even though that study came out, I believe in two thousand and twenty one, didn't it? That, that the one of that the efficacy one. I'm not sure. I I took too many notes. (laughs) The 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 technology in those e-collars was from 2006. Oh, interesting. That's interesting. Yeah. So already there's this ethical dilemma where you go, well, hold on, the tool has completely changed. Like if you get a chameleon collar and you you you, you check it back to one of those. And I mean, collars. now they have like 130 levels. Those had like five. Or like and, 10, and like a thing like instead of a thing. And a, like, yeah. they're like a different thing now, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and this sounds like me selling e-collars and it really isn't. But, <laughs> but this is just me trying to be fair with science because the thing that frustrates me, I, I'm, I will change my opinion when I believe that there is enough data that that tells me to change my opinion, and there isn't at the moment, but I want that I want that to be true. I want to be a dog trainer who is truly using the evidence to support the best practice that I can do, and therefore I want the studies not to say what I want them to say. I want them to say what is, because otherwise there's no point in them. And and that study, the the the. the the main variables in that study, so they got these three groups. They got the e-collar group, the e-collar trainers, and the e-collar train. There's lots We're of still on about. the Mills study. Mills talking, China, right? yeah. Okay, I just want to make sure. So, so there's some really good things about it. The first good thing about that study is that they match paired the sample. So they got a bunch of dogs. I think it's 14 dogs in each group, thereabouts. They got um, um, match paired the group. So they basically said, we're going to rate these dogs on how bad their predation problems are and make sure that the trainers in each group get approximately the same amount of bad dogs. So Mm -hmm. they get approximately the same amount of dogs that have actually killed sheep and ones that are just pulling towards them and blah, 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 blah. So that's one good thing that they did. Another good thing that they did is that they did use, they didn't just drag off, you know, Joe from down the road, he says he's got an e-collar. They used the e-collar trainers that the box of the e-collar said that they the recommended by the manufacturer. Mm, okay. Which which is is one way of doing it that is that is better because at least they're not just getting anyone, they're getting the ones that the manufacturers have said these guys are the ones to use, right? Um <clears throat> and then they gave them all these dogs, but there was t- t- two huge problems for me. First off, 
there doesn't appear to be, and I've read the study like a thousand times looking for it, there doesn't appear to be any set goal, right? They've given them the predation dogs and they've said, train them, tra train these dogs, like the, the problem is predation. But they haven't said, train these dogs to be reliable off lead around livestock or train these dogs to be reliable on lead walking past livestock or these dogs should come back when they approach livestock at one meter from the livestock that there's no criteria right and so there's no there's literally no data on how well any of the dogs did other than whether or not the owners were satisfied right but if i was an owner and i went to a trainer and he said in these next in these three sessions i'm going to train your dog to recall at 10 meters from the dog and i trained the dog to do that I'm going to be satisfied and if I'm uh, an owner that says I'm going to, your dog's going to be able to run free around these sheep and then the dog's able to run free around the sheep I'm going to be satisfied right so it doesn't that that doesn't work anyway so then what they do is they the trainers train the one of the big problems about the trainers training it other than that they don't have a set goal that's comparable in any way shape or form is that they train them in different locations and one of them is training in an indoor undercover area in spring in the sun the other one is being trained in the snow right so so already you've got a temperature changes that's going to affect things like the dog's cortisol and how much the dog's able to learn and you know blah 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 blah, blah depending on breed um and b the behavior of the sheep of course which is going to have huge implications um and and the dogs, like the dog's general welfare. Like if I put my Vizsla out in that, in the snow, she like she's going to be shivering and yelping and sitting on the floor because she's the biggest wimp going and my bulldog, to be fair. Um, so, and if I put my Mallies in the hot sun indoors, they're going to be panting, right? Um, and bearing in mind that those three behaviours that I've just said, like the shaking and the, you know, um, the yelping and the, Panting or all behaviors that they were literally measuring in that study. Mm. So, so, so the, the temperature piece is, is quite important. Secondly, to that, they did they failed to mention in that study that the dogs in the um group with the e-collar trainers moved significantly more than the dogs in the positive reinforcement thing. Now, Move, what do you mean? moved, as in then there was increased movement. Oh, 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 got it. That they actually were move, moving yeah. more. Got it. Okay. My guess would be that the positive reinforcement trains were doing more clicker clicker styles with the thing and they were running more. But that's going to dramatically affect the cortisol level, which is what they were measuring. Because a dog that's moving more releases a lot more cortisol than a dog that doesn't move. Like movement obviously is stressful for a body in, mm -hmm. you know, stressful as in. Um, and so that's going to have huge implications on, on that. They then, <laughs> they then, uh, they then suggested that the they were going to look at the dogs and they're going to see what so they've, they're measuring their cortisol levels and they're also measuring uh, the stress signals of the dog in those training situations and then when they come back to those training situations and um <laughs> and one of my big problems with this is that we talk about using micro signaling for stress and measuring this a lot in science don't we so a lot of the time we measure things like yawning the licking of the nose, panting, um, all these behaviours, yeah. But what's fascinating is that if you keep, like, you, you, you look at, well, hold on, who says those things are stress signals? And then you keep 
going backwards and backwards. There's no scientific data to suggest that those things are stress signals. And in fact, the scientific data on it says that it's almost impossible to work out whether or not a dog is apprehensive or whether or not they are anticipating or whether or not they are stressed based on those signals. It's almost impossible because the vast majority of dogs perform all those micro signals when they're apprehensive, when they're anticipating something good and when they're stressed. So already the me the very measures to measure stress are not coming from within the scientific community. They're coming from the basically from the calming signals book that was written ages ago by to Rodriguez, the hippie, you know, and and uh, like it couldn't be less, it couldn't be less scientific <laughs> if it wanted to be, really. Um, get to get the crystals out next, but um, so <laughs> <laughs> so it, like it just drives me mad. So so they so they're then they're then basing it based on these stress signals, right? But the thing that fascinates me about that that study is the fact that they're they're checking out the stress signals of the dog in that situation now if i get my six-year-old right and i say to him i'm going to teach you how to read right and we're going to sit in this you're going to read this book over here and every time he attempts to open a page i go to him yeah good boy i'm going to give you a kinder egg well done you're super i love you oh give me a cuddle right and then i take him into another room with an actual teacher who says right <clears throat> sit down here, sit on the chair. We're not going to sit on the bed. We're going to sit on the chair. And there's the book. And no, 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 no. It's not that. It's this one. Right. OK, so now you've got to blend your words. Do you remember how to blend your words? No, you can't play with that. Come back here. Do this. Da, 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 da. And, and gives him positive and negative outcomes for his, you know, and consequences for his behavior. Right. Even if none of those are in any way aversive. Do you think that my child's going to have enjoyed sitting with me and snuggling and playing with Kinder Eggs more or being sat down and told how to do something and being given, you know, given consequences for getting it right and getting it wrong more. Well, he's going to enjoy the nice stuff more, right? There's going to be less stress signals when he's playing with me than when he's being taught something with them. So without any measure of success or efficacy, the dog is going to enjoy being given reinforcement only in that situation significantly more than being given reinforcement and punishment in that moment right but that that doesn't necessarily have any bearing on the ethics of those of those sessions because if if that session was found to be effective and that dog was then able to run off lead for the rest of its life and these sessions were found to be ineffective and that dog had to stay on lead for the rest of its life or vice versa and these dogs that had that went through the balanced methods with those old historic e-collar trainers then went home and bit their owners and these guys were happy and healthy for the rest of their lives then those that that's going to have completely different weighting but it didn't measure any of that stuff it only measured the stress of the dog within the session so it's that that study all that study told us was that if you put a dog in the cold with a trainer that uses an old historical e-collar on you you're going to enjoy it less than if you're in the warm with a trainer that only uses treats that's all it told us and yet it's used again and again and again and though and and the the scientists have used the videos of that to look at efficacy and brought out a study last year, which I felt was really unfair on the balance trainers, brought our study out last year. So it looks like this super modern study on efficacy. And you're like, when you get into the minutia of it, you go, oh no, hold on, it's the videos from 2006. They're just analyzing the videos with the old technology, the old trainers with the old training style before 
before they started to develop different things like napopo or activation or all these different ways of using these you know much more technologically advanced things and we're going to bypass that and we're going to look at the efficacy from 2006 you know like it like it the, the science the body of work isn't there it isn't fair on either community but it, 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 it to for 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 the current discussions going on between Ivan and Jack uh, and Zach it's like to me it's just a pointless conversation because you're like we just don't have the science we don't, you can't say the science says either because it doesn't say either because the science is shitty because we haven't de- like we haven't come up with the definitions that we need in order to perform the science yet i think this answered my question from an hour ago which was uh, i was saying um you know how could we look at or how could professionals look at things more objectively or or what to take into consideration because i i think I guess I didn't, I don't know that as I read through the studies that I thought about the technology piece, even though I know that it's changed drastically. I don't know that it dawned on me to be very honest, Mm. but I would also say that trainers who aren't going to use maybe an electric collar, they're not going to care if the technologies from 2000 or 2023. Mm-hmm. I just don't think that they're gonna they're gonna necessarily care. And I'm not set like I'm not discounting that at all because like I'm actually I'm taking um one of the Mike Ellis courses to understand a lot more about uh the electric collar. And um so I'm not even arguing, you know, one way or the other. I'm just stating that I think I think that I don't know that it would be like people wouldn't necessarily care about that. But they should. That's my point. Uh, yeah. They, oh, yeah, if, for sure. You know, if, if you're not going to like it all, if you're going to, cho- I choose not to use it. So because I choose not to use it, I want to be as educated as possible on it. Mm-hmm. And I want to make sure that I'm completely up to date with A, what the what the scientific community is feeding back to us about that tool and B, what the training community is, is feeding back about that tool so that I'm ready to change my mind if the balance weighs in a different direction. Um, and I start to say, well, actually, it's going to be worth my while in, in in learning to actually use this tool because it turns out that it isn't as unethical as I thought it was, or it isn't as aversive to the dog as I thought it was, or it, you know, or, or in the balance of things. When I look at my kind of my pillars of training, it's it's going to be something that fits within my own ethics. I think we need to fall out with these labels of positive and balanced and all that bullshit i think that the the further we keep in us and them the the more foolish we become as an industry because it wastes everybody's time i don't think any owner gives a flying shit about what you call yourself i think you're only ever labeling yourself under those guises for other trainers um i think we need to put a lot less emphasis on the quadrant because it doesn't it's it's irrelevant most of the time and if we actually just look at the training practicality is the behavior increasing or decreasing like that's important, like super important. And there's various different metrics, but so is the emotion of the animal and how intrinsically, re- like how intrinsically rewarding a behavior is and whether or not it's a competing motivator or not. And whether or not the dog's been bred to do it, all those other things are more important, probably, particularly when it comes to stopping behavior safely. Um, and I think we've just got to wait for the science to catch up or or have better cohesion between people out in the field and people in the lab so that the people in the lab understand 
the things that are going on in the field so that they can test them rather than testing these weird arbitrary things like whether like how many studies are there about whether or not a dog can follow a point and you're like really do we need another study on whether or not the dog's going to follow the point around the fence but then what does it say about these associations that are backing it you know like when you see zach say like oh well like here's this long list you know like that's what makes it that's what makes it hard too is because it does provide rationale for someone like him to say like look i am backed by almost like all these organizations you know so then it's like and i think that's why it goes beyond just like trainers educating themselves because if the science is shaky which you're kind of saying but then Mm -hmm. the science is being used by organizations to have these position statements and then those position statements are then used to label almost like a whole half of dog trainers as unethical and outdated and abusive and they have to go away and we just have to shut them up and don't listen to them and don't support them and they're all abusers like then it's like where like i don't know it almost yeah (laughs) like i get i get in a lot of trouble for being too supportive of the balance community when i don't use tools by my own community you know like but at the end of the day i feel bad because there isn't enough that we don't have the science to support those opinions and i think it's really easy to stay popular especially if you're one of those big associations and for sure like if positive reinforcement based training was more effective and worked in every case of competing motivators in competing motivators and high predation and you know severe resource guarding by dogs that are bred to resource guard and and things like this then like there wouldn't like then I don't see how any trainer would have a problem with those position statements because we'd all go yeah fair one it's better to use something nice that's effective than something that's a little bit unpleasant for the dog that's effective but it isn't that easy and dogs are being put to sleep or medicated or or put into these highly difficult positions which is why it's so controversial um in our actual industry rather than by the people who are sitting in an office in an armchair who last time they trained a dog was a Scottish terrier in 1964 and they have like read through these studies and go oh, I'll just read I'll just read the conclusion because it's easier or I'll just read the abstract yep this is another tick for positive reinforcement you know or like oh brilliant it's going to bring in a lot more you know you're not going to sit as a charity and go we support the use of electric collars on dogs uh please give us your money and pay for our kennels you know like it's 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 it's, there's so many so much politics surrounding it and so many so much of that politics is about um is about popularity that there is a, a huge propaganda piece when it comes to um, the, the science-based stuff. You know, like yeah. in my eyes, you've got DEFRA who have said, look, we basically want to ban shock collars. Here's 64,000 pounds. Can you show us that, pot shock, that, that, that they're not necessary? Yes, no problem, sir. I'll go and do that in my scientific lab with, you know, when the only dog I've ever owned was a elderly Jack Russell. And the last time I touched a dog, my, you know, was when my grandchild was, was <laughs> you know, it's, it's um it's it's really it's really frustrating for people who are out there in the field because we all know that there's there's no dispute that those tools work right if you if you're a practical trainer if, you, if you're someone who's out there training there's no dispute that when they're used properly those those tools work that there, there is some dispute um and i've I've lectured about predation all over the world and I always come up with this challenge and I say, if, can you show me if you're, if you're a positive based trainer, can you show me a before and after 
of your dog in predation and then your dog in that same situation, not in predation, right? And, and I haven't had a video back yet. And I've, I've, I've lectured all around the world to thousands and thousands of people asking for that. I've had some brilliant recall recalls, like some, some wicked rapid recalls off a, like Malinois coming off a squirrel when previously it shown Manny chasing the squirrel and so on and so forth. I get a lot of people coming back going, but getting a before video is unethical. And you're like, no, not when it's going to change the lives of thousands of dogs in the future. Um, and, you know, so, but, but to, it's it is possible like I've I've habituated my dogs around livestock where there's mild predation I've had one Mally in my life who was so highly predatory that she um we were on a football pitch once and she was on the end of a lead and she sniffed the floor and and I swear on my life I've got two witnesses for this she was sniffing the floor and I was thinking what's she sniffing the floor about oh, while well, I was having a conversation with someone and then she went and she head butted the floor and popped out the head of a rabbit like she must have smelt it coming underneath her or being underneath her, and she literally head-butted the fl- and popped out like she was insanely predatory, and 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 we were never able to um, get her to a place where she wasn't managed around predation about uh, you know around those problems. Luckily, we moved to Spain, and it isn't such a problem here. Um, but it was a massive problem when we were living in Herefordshire, which is right next to Wales, where there were sheep everywhere, and so she just had to go on lead because and and even on lead, she plucked a, a rabbit twice. She plucked rabbits out of the hedgerow and killed them. And so that's not exactly ethical, these poor, healthy rabbits that were killed. Um, and and that's with two at the time, I, I like to think, fairly well skilled dog trainers working nearly every day on predation stuff. You know, so so there is a question mark as to whether or not, hello, mate, there is a question mark come on, as to whether or not those, um, whether or not those, whether or not the positive reinforcement based methods are effective in some of those super, 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 really severe cases of predation or of like highly intrinsically valuable, biologically motivated behavior. Um, so until those things are reconciled, it, it, it's just, it's just, it's just, I think it's really unfair to say, well, let's ban, ban it because we are killing dogs by banning those, by, by banning those tools. However, the argument on the other side is should they should they be available to everybody absolutely not should there be education that underpins them absolutely should tra- should should owners be able to buy them off the internet for sure no way um but it's it's just so much more complex it's so much more complex than than you think it is when you start and when you first come out of the training womb and you go oh my god that's it. This is, you know, positive reinforcement for the win. It can you can solve everything with a clicker and these horrible, disgusting electric shock collars that are gonna, you know, every if they go on the dog, the dog's gonna be burnt and burnt around the neck, and it's you know that it's never gonna recover. That's not true. <laughs> That's not true either. Like the the truth of the matter is gonna be the middle ground, isn't it? And just I guess people just need to learn to be a little bit more. Uh, decent really and and smart about their choices yeah and that middle ground that's kind of been the theme almost every one of these episodes we do we're trying to find that um, because things are polarized and we find that there are a lot of talented sane well-spoken people knowledgeable that are in the middle so um I don't know if you guys have anything else. No, that was that was great. I don't want to keep you any longer. It's that was, we're, we keep breaking the record for the the length of the episode. <laughs> so uh, 
I really appreciate that. I think Anthony usually ask um, where people might be able to find you. Oh, okay. Or, so what you're you, doing. You can find me uh, at the School of Canine Science, which is our online education platform. And if it's okay with you guys, let me, I'll be told off if I don't say it. There is a discount code for anybody who listens to the podcast uh, on any of our online courses, um, which is... Shock collars to... 22. Oh, <laughs> I'm going to be in so much trouble for saying that. <laughs> the, thing, the thing is with me is that I'm just really, really keen to stay as authentic as possible. Like, I really want to be authentic and I don't. Yeah, for like... sure. No, I'm, I'm messing. I'm just messing with you. It's so funny because it's so funny you said that because I was thinking prong collars, but I didn't know. All capital letters, canine class. And it will give you 25% off any of the courses. Canine, the, the word Canine spelled. class. Canine class, all one word. Canine, C-A-N-I-N-E-C-L-A-S-S. Um, Perfect. And, uh, yeah. Great. Well, thank you so much. This is awesome. That's all right. No problem. No problem at all. It'd be nice to talk to you again in two years' time when I've probably done another 180 and changed my opinion on everything all over again. <laughs> yes. We'll have you there. <laughs> all right, guys. We hope you enjoyed this episode of The Canine Classroom. If you like the show, make sure to smack that like button, share the show with your friends, and give us a rating. Until next time, class dismissed. <laughs>